Hello, listeners. Howdy, listeners. Welcome back to the circuit. I am Ben Beharin. Greetings, programs. I am Jake Oldberg. Thanks for listening, and I, I we appreciate all of the positive feedback on Jay's uh, on Jay's limited series, the uh, Back to Baskets, a history of Broadcom, filling in for me while I was at a semiconductor vendor NDA event, which eventually I will be able to talk to, and that will be talk about, and that will be extremely exciting <laughs> since it's a hot topic and everybody likes to talk about this company, both positively and negatively. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so. You wrote a piece on valuing NVIDIA. Uh, should we value them as a hardware company, as a software company? And so we thought it would be fun to talk about perhaps some different ways to think about companies, namely semiconductor companies, but we're going to use a different company as a, as a jumping off point. And, 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 and should we value them just purely as they ship pieces of silicon or is there a whole lot more to their story? So... The way that I think this is interesting to just jump off on is to use Apple as a lens, because this is a wonderful debate about how do you value Apple? Do you value them as a hardware company, as a software company? I'm under no illusion that anyone would value them as a semiconductor company, nor should they. However, that is an element of their of their unique differentiation. Um, but but if I just lobbed the question to you at, at a high level, would you say Apple is is valued as a hardware company? I think that they're they're closer to being valued as a hardware company than a software company historically. I think they've and they've slowly slowly been inching away from that. They're I don't think they've ever really been thought of as a software company, which is a mistake because they do a lot of software. Um, they're kind of being valued now as a services company. Uh, it's tricky. I mean, Apple's just so big. It's it's hard to really say what they're valued as. They're kind of in a class of their own. Um, but for most of their history, I think they were viewed as a, as a hardware company. They were covered by hardware analysts. Um, they're, they're viewed as someone who makes computers and as a hardware company. So, okay. So so this is how where I think this conversation gets super interesting, right? And it's, and it's related to things. So if, and, 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 I know you had lots of arguments with your colleagues on the sell side and the buy side about this, as did I and and Horace and Hor- Horace Dadu and I were in a number of these New York banker meetings together. So if, if you just took a hardware look at the company and you said, okay, you are only a hardware company, then it's, it's, it's really hard to differentiate them then from any other company that makes smartphones and or, and or PCs. And, and I remember like the, the broad view on the street was just Apple's going to be disrupted at any given time by the next lowest priced competitor because all people care about is price. And so if somebody comes in and has an amazing phone that can do all these things, run an Android at 600 bucks, Apple's screwed. Like that was for the long time, this, this, this view. And, and my argument was always, look, uh, Apple has never had to sell the lowest priced product. And here's why. It's because they have an exclusive on their operating systems. And so if you wanted to just value them as a hardware company, then start and say, okay, let's let's start with the base value model of other hardware companies, but then change your model to account for the 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 increase in price that they can sell, let's say it's $200 or it's $300 or it's $400 in because of their proprietary software 
that now gives them that high SP, that price advantage, as well as that moat. And so if you were going to try to model the software side, I, I would just say you do it above that baseline of other hardware companies where, yes, if they ran Windows, they would have to sell low, low-priced low computers. There's a buffer above that. Again, to find the number, it could, it could vary. But that's where I was. my argument was always recognize that upside in software that gives them the ASP higher than if they just ran the same software as somebody else. Yeah, I, I did an analysis. This is a long time ago, but I looked at a, a large chunk of retail data, all the laptops being sold one year, and the average price of a MacBook was $1,000 higher than the average price of a Windows PC being sold. And these, these, you know, over large quantities, right? And so, I mean, $1,000, you know, it's, it's a $1,600 computer versus a $500 computer. And this, and this was even before Apple Silicon, and, you know, this is, this is years ago. So just having that, their own operating system was hugely value additive, a huge difference. You could just see that. Like, you go to the store, you can buy lots of perfectly good, performative Windows laptops for five, 600 bucks. The cheapest Apple you know, MacBook is $1,000, right? And mm-hmm. so, that's, I mean, that's a huge, huge difference in, a, in a, what you know, people thought of as a competitive, very competitive market. The Windows side is incredibly competitive. Uh, and so Apple had a huge advantage there. And, and you know, in, in phones, you can see that advantage even more clearly. You know, Horace and I both did analysis on this in 2009, right, where we looked at market share. Back in 2009, iPhone had just launched. And it was still single-digit percentage of the cell phone market. We didn't even call it a smartphone market. It was just the cell phone market. And they had roughly 5% of the market. And so people were saying, oh, it's just a toy. It's just a little niche. But at the same time that they had 5% share of the revenue, they were already at that point consuming 90% of the operating profit of all the handset vendors. Right Back then, you could all the handset vendors broke out operating profits by, by you know for each of their phone lines. And... Apple is 90% of the industry's profit, right? There, there were, because there were, you know, a half dozen vendors that were losing money. So it was, it was a really, really messy metric where it was basically Apple and Samsung were making money and everyone else was losing money. Mm-hmm. And and what we saw after that was, you know, most of those other companies exited the market. BlackBerry, LG, Sharp, HTC, sort of, right? You just go down the list and most of those companies are out of the market or greatly reduced. Right. And, and again, it goes to to the software, right? The, the platform effects of of the iPhone and iOS. And it's just a huge, huge, huge differentiator for them. Again, mm. the components inside the iPhone, back in 2009, the components that were inside the iPhone were the same components mm-hmm. that anyone else could buy. Mm-hmm. Right. It was before before they had the, the N series, the, the applications processor. Yep. And, right. And yet they were making double, triple, you know, all the profits, infinity more profits than everyone else. Right. Right. Yeah, no, exactly right. Right. And that's why, you know, sort of my point was the way you could say, well, what's the software side valuable to them? It's what they can charge over anybody by just being different and and, and having that software. Again, tougher to model, but that was how I always argued. Like, look, they have a higher ASP. That ASP is roughly 200 to 250 bucks more than everybody else's. That's what they get because of, but they don't sell software, which is why I think it gets gets people sort of confused. But you mentioned the point that I think is the most important one. 
as we transitioned into thinking about these from semis is the platform, right? And so it's really, you know, like people like to talk about moats. And so what is, what is it that they have that their competition does not? And to some degree, to your point about, you know, NVIDIA is, that I always thought was interesting is that the street tends to love, I'm going to have to just use, I'm just going to have to use the M word, monopolies. <laughs> the, the, the street loves companies that have a grip, have a, so much leverage on a market and so much that others don't that they feel like they're the short list and the winner on that short list. And that's what NVIDIA has been. They've got the vast majority of GPUs out there in the data center and really even on the on the client side. And that's a $40 billion business, right, on it on its own. So there's been all this view that nobody's going to come in and, and take this. And that was, bef- I mean, even not that that size, but that was the view before CUDA. NVIDIA just made the best GPUs. And they have a whole gaming gaming ecosystem behind them and people just want NVIDIA. They don't want anything else. Like gamers just want NVIDIA. But then like right, CUDA, GP, GPU came along and, and and they launched that out. And so now there's this, you know, even NVIDIA will tell you, like, look, we don't, we're not a silicon company, we're a platform company. Right. That's the language that they like to use. And, and a lot of it's true. But within that view, I thought your point about, you know, look, you could model them as software because of that, that to the degree that whether or not they sell or not, that's the thing that keeps that lock-in. That's the thing that keeps their platform optimized and unique and fuels that cycle of their development on GPU. It is all this software. Yeah, I, my, I wrote that piece after I had I had a chat with a friend of mine who works at AMD, and we, we got on this topic of... And he disagreed with you? No, 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 no. It was, it was okay, interesting. Okay. He, we got on this topic of you know what's going on in the AI, AI market and you know AMD versus, versus NVIDIA and, and GPU. And he basically admitted to me, he said, we're not even trying to go after the training market. NVIDIA has got that locked. They have CUDA, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're not even going to try it. We're, you know, we're going to go after the inference market where we, we have a shot. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not denigrating AMD. I think they're doing great. But I, I actually think his comments, I took them really positively because, I, I, you know, a lot of times companies will say, oh, we can take them on. We can take on this dominant company. But... AMD is actually making the sensible choice to, to just pick their battles that they can where they can win rather than you know tilt tilt at windmills, and I, I and I I just keep hearing there's obviously lots of talk everywhere about AI and GPT and LLMs, and it and I've I've talked to I don't know two dozen investors in the last month about this and they they keep asking me well, what how do I invest in this how do I invest in AI, and there aren't a lot of great options right there. You know, and it, because it's it's Nvidia, like so much of the semiconductors powering all the advances we've seen in the last three months on on AI, is running on Nvidia silicon. And so, how do they get here? How do they build that really dominant position? Like I, I don't I don't like to say monopoly dominant. <laughs> That's my people at Nvidia will be very mad at me for using that word. I'm just <laughs> I use it loosely to say someone who has leverage. I'm going to get emails. I know it that that I said that in in her, but 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 you're right though. I mean, I think the the key to this is again really what fuels their hardware because again, if that didn't exist now now and this is where again I think it's an interesting conversation about differentiation in actual technology because I'm not saying that Intel and AMD's GPUs are bad, but for a long time Nvidia has just been known to have the best GPUs. The software side 
continues to fuel that cycle, pull in that moat, and then basically standardize machine learning and a whole host of other software around CUDA and around around their GPUs. And so it was a it was a super smart move, but again, brought them so much leverage. But what's interesting to me, and you made this point about AI, is well, one, NVIDIA has been talking about AI for such a long time. I mean, arguably longer than really anybody. So so you have these other companies now saying, hey, we're 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 now AI companies, right? People in semiconductors, we're now in fact I, I tweeted this last week. I was like, uh, this era will be known as the great pivot when everybody goes, if we're now an AI company, it's a, it's a pivot to AI, but NVIDIA has been saying that for, for, for a long time. And yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a growing TAM in terms of money. I don't again, know how many more semiconductors are going to get sold to do this, but that's a whole different conversation, but, it, but there's a lot of value in the software, in the services in that part of AI. But I find it interesting that all these other companies are now just saying this, right? Well, we're, Hey, we're AI companies. You can't just do that, right? It's got to be the whole stack, the software, the platform, and all of that has to lead to some advantage with the technology or the architecture that these companies are doing. Or again, I just don't see them making a dent in, in anything that really NVIDIA has built to this point or the, or NVIDIA's growth story. Yeah, I, I agree. They're, they're, you know, it, it comes down to this very solid software platform that they have in CUDA. And that gives them an advantage that is, to, to a large degree, unassailable anytime soon uh, in the foreseeable future, right? And it it, it is it, it's interesting to see where they're going to go with it next. Um, I don't I don't know if we want to how deep we want to go into Nvidia, but like they know they have something here, and they're trying to extend this in a lot of interesting ways. They're trying to put out new other software platforms or software esque platforms, things that range from you know. A full-blown cloud like what they call omniverse mm -hmm. but i would also argue some of their interconnect solutions where they're like nv link mm -hmm. those aren't exactly software but but they're they're verging on it where you're pulling multiple multiple chips um they they i think they've they've stumbled on something and they're trying to extend it now and um it gives them a, a really important position yeah well, even just like you said, the NVIDIA cloud stuff, they've got um, three uh, LLMs. The two I'm remembering right off the bat is BioNemo and Nemo that run on NVIDIA cloud. So they have some assets there, again, all trained and accelerated, best to be optimized on NVIDIA GPU. So there's a services component, right, that comes to that. But the, but the playbook is interesting, right, because this is the one that we kept talking about, right, a couple episodes back. We, we talked about is the semiconductor growth cycle over? And so what happens when you can't just, you just can't sell any more chips? We know how many chips get sold in a year and that's not growing. You then start to figure out how to maximize more revenue from your existing customers. And that's where software, the platforms, that's where maybe services starts to come into play. And that's why I think you see, you know, everybody, not just AMD, Intel, NXP, Broadcom, they, they start to, t they're trying to tell the software story, I think, to poke at what you said, which is that view us as not just semiconductor companies, maybe view us as a little bit of a software company because it's the only way to materially change their valuation. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, the, there's a lot of talk in semiconductor land now about software. And I think just to close out on NVIDIA a bit, I think that they offer an important lesson because yesterday they had this big software dominance because of CUDA. But if you actually go back and look at the origin of CUDA, it had nothing to do with any of the things we're talking about, right? It, 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 
they were trying to solve a very specific problem back in the 90s around uh, drivers, video drivers, and incompatibility between the CPU and the GPU and the monitors. Like, that was a big, thorny issue. I bricked, a, I personally bricked a, a PC once because there was some incompatibility issue. Like, they had a, a tangible problem and they solved it with software. And they actually took, there was, there was a fair amount of pushback at the time because there was a little bit of a performance hit that you would have to take from having CUDA running in the, in the background. Um, they, they didn't set out to build a dominant software position. They didn't, certainly didn't set yeah. out to try and monetize software. And yeah. I think that's important because today there's a lot of confusion in, uh, among certain semiconductor executives who say, oh, we're, we're going to be a software company. We're going to sell software. And I think that's the that's the wrong mindset, right? right. I, I actually wrote another piece about it about a week before, saying company software semiconductor companies all say they want they want to sell software, and what they're implying is we really want to they want to have software company re- valuation multiples. Correct. That's what they want. What they really yes. need, though, what they need is some form of competitive advantage. Yeah. And that's that's where their focus should be. Don't don't worry about anything as a service. Don't worry about the acronyms or whatever, building you know, software sales teams. What you should focus on is your core product. How do you extend something around that, possibly in the form of software, that gives you a competitive differentiation? Yeah. No, no I totally agree. In fact, just the last point on, on NVIDIA, I, I, I was in in a small group discussion with Jensen when this was sort of all kicking off. And, and, and he's such a good storyteller because re- really the, the problem that he laid on us and trying to convince us that this was the right thing to do was simply that he made the observation that the GPU is great for more general purpose computing tasks than is used today, just on graphics. And so his whole point was general purpose GPU computing opens up the wide realm for more and more software that should just run and be optimized on the GPU. And thus CUDA was born to make it easy to make more workloads than graphics run on GPUs. It was brilliant. I mean, and now it turns out to be even more brilliant. And you're right. I don't think he saw all of this in mind, but that was his goal. Just make the GPU do more than graphics. And boom, here we are. And he was totally right. Like it makes a ton of sense. But now we're in this conversation where there's actually a lot of stuff that's been running on the GPU that doesn't need to be running on the GPU because it's expensive and it requires a ton of power. And so now there's this unbundling conversation that I think is interesting, which goes now to some more broader points about where the software opportunities are, um, which I think is interesting. But you had some points on thinking about this from Qualcomm that I thought were interesting. So I'll let you launch into that that example. Yeah. So, so I've been thinking through this, looking at semiconductor companies through the framework of software right and i think there there are some important um examples or precursors to where the industry is heading that are are worth pointing out right and i I think the first one is is intel um intel for a long time had a dominant near monopoly position in data center in large part because they spent so much time and money investing in linux Right. Linux, you know, everything in the data center runs essentially on Linux now at the at the lowest level. And a lot of that Linux was made possible by all the time and support that Intel engineers poured into helping it in the early days. And they didn't necessarily they didn't directly monetize Linux, but their rise in the data center can, I think, be very safely tied to the rise of Linux. Right. And 
that that was a really like I I I don't know how much people really recognize that I, I, the Linux people know it. I don't know if Intel and other industry people understand it, but Intel invested in software and that yielded them immense results. I think another good example of a company that had an adjacent software support to their chip story is Qualcomm. And for Qualcomm, the software came in the form of the wireless standards. Right? We don't exactly think of the wireless standards as software, um, but in some senses they are. Like if you actually uncap a wireless modem and you look at the chip inside, it, it, it looks really um, very messy. Right, you uncap a CPU and it, it's it's somewhat elegant. There's all this repetition. There's patterns there. It looks like a very organized system. You uncap a modem, and it's it's very heterogeneous. There's all different kinds of little weird blocks here and there because Qualcomm designed their modems in order to map to the wireless standards, right? And and we can we can talk a lot about how important the wireless standards are to Qualcomm and their development. That's that's a topic for a different day, but they they were able to build their chips underneath the scaffold of the, the wireless standards. And they've done really well with that. And I think <clears throat> I think if you then extend that further to where they're looking today into automotive, I think it's another good market for them, not just because their product fits the specs of what's required, but you're also going to be operating in this world of... <clears throat> Uh, you know, a semi-proprietary set of software. Right? I don't think there's going to be an automotive ecosystem that works on all cars. That's just not going to happen. What you're ha going to have instead is every auto o OEM is going to have their own sort of software. Maybe there'll be some common layer underneath around Linux or whatever, but it's going to be semi-proprietary. <clears throat> and there'll be enough similarities though that Qualcomm can build on that and design chips for that. And I think, um, again, we're not talking about them owning software. They're not. I don't think they're going to sell software so much, but they're going to use that software ecosystem to their advantage. And and that's that's. I mean, that's a good way to do it. That's another good way to do it. They don't have to be a software business. They don't have to go out and buy totally. Qtix or whatever. Totally, totally. <laughs> and 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 that's why I think using this Apple example, right? Which is like just just back to Nvidia. And and I think this point about. SEP standards for Qualcomm is a brilliant one because you're totally right. I, I think if more people wrestled with that as, again, the moat, the moat that then spurs roadmap in a connectivity company that's about to go into a lot of connected things as a part of their growth story, that's a really interesting way to model kind of the upside. But but just coming back to this sort of point, which is that what does a, a, techno, what does a, a, a semiconductor company have that's not just we design great processors or we design great memory stacks or we design great ASICs. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be something because your competitors can also design. And then sometimes your competitors can undercut you in price. So there has to be more to that narrative that that is their moats, whether they sell it or not. Right. So it's, it's standards for Qualcomm. You're totally right about Intel. It was that there was just so much data center ecosystem software around x86. And that's still there today, which is one of the reasons why x86 is still the dominant share of, of the data center because it's just been built around x86. Um, and for, for, for now, <laughs> that's a good that's a good conversation. But then again, same for Nvidia right, in terms of graphs. So, so I like I like this. So, so but now I'm going to throw this one at you because we're optimistic on Risk Five and we think that Risk Five might have perhaps some software plays. But but how 
How does that, how does a company doing risk five or a company that might want to do risk five, or again, a company that's big and makes chips that wants to get in risk five have to then think about the software ecosystem. So again, they're not a commodity player in risk five. We're solving the risk five problems. Like this is our consulting, like at the moment, right? So I'm lobbying out a tough question, which we could just surface in theory. I'm just, this is an interesting point about there is no software moats for that yet. Yeah. So, so risk five is, is going to be tricky because, um, inherent in risk five, it's, it's, you know, the whole point of risk five is that it's flexible. You're not dependent on Intel. You're not dependent on arm to tell you what you can do with your design. You can you can customize certain pieces of it so long as you comply to whatever the, the certain standards. Um, and so what that means though is there are a lot of incompatibilities within Risk Five. Your Risk Five implementation may be different than mine, even at some important levels. And if you talk to people in that the space, you 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 hear that a lot. And I think I think what will matter, well, I think what will help differentiate the risk five companies is there. I, I think there's no hope of unifying risk five. And I think that's, mm. I think that's going to prove fruitless. Instead, what you do is you get very good at customizing for your customer's needs, right? You figure out what the customer really needs. And then you, you hone the chip, you, you architect it in such a way that it really, really meets what they, what they need. And that's, that is, that's risky. That's very risky, especially if you know you only have five customers to choose from, and you end up to, you know customizing for one of them, and they walk away. Um, but I think that's the that's the future, and I, I think that's partly why we've seen a lot of Risk Five success in embedded in IoT, where you have a much larger number of customers. They're less demanding in terms of silicon strategy. They don't have a silicon strategy. They just want something that works for them. Um, they're not going to you know. Some machine tool company is not going to go out and design its own chip too too much. They they will happily take what's semi custom for them from a Risk Five vendor, uh, as opposed to I, I think that's where the the next step is. Can Risk Five get into the data center where it gets it gets trickier because then you have that large customer problem, a large customer who by the way can design their own silicon if they don't like what you know you're showing them. So I think there is room for this. I think I think the the Risk Five aspirants out there are going to do really well in learning how to make a, a, a chip that looks custom to that to a customer but is not does not require custom amount of work on your engineering task force it's it's that's why I like semi custom like every customer's part it's it's you, you know you customer one gets your part it has all the things you need Customer two gets everything that they need to their specs, but underneath the hood is really just one chip. And I've just yeah, sort of blown right. a few fuses or you know packaged it differently or something. Yep. Um, and that's and that's the that's the path forward. And I think that's yeah. I think that's actually much easier to do on Risk Five than ARM. Yeah. No, and no impossible no. to do on x86. Correct. So so let's go back to your x86 point real fast. So where does where does AMD fall into all of this? Um, I mean. Honestly, AMD has had a lot of success, and I don't want to. I don't want to downplay how good their technology has been, but a lot of their success has come from a competitor's mishaps, not being able to meet demand, needing to have a good source, second source, and that second source being a really quality product in, in Ryzen. 
But I, I go back to this point that you just said, which is how defensible is this software in the x86 ecosystem? Because if it's a weakness for Intel, there's also some weakness for AMD. So I think, I think, yeah, I think on the CPU side, it's, it's challenging. Um, they can't rely on Intel being, uh, you know, behind on Moore's law forever. Either, either Intel will fix itself or they'll get, you know, they'll, they'll go to TSMC. So it's difficult on the CPU side, right? I, I wrote a piece about this last month. There are a dozen companies making CPUs right now. That's a, that's a, that's a big number. I think, AMD's advantage is that they actually do a lot of other things. They they have a complete portfolio. They've broadly diversified now. They have GPUs, obviously. They have FPGAs coming in with via Xilinx. They have some networking stuff. Um, it's not quite as comprehensive as NVIDIA, but it's still pretty good. And to the extent that they can tie that together, uh, they... I think that will be their form of competition. Uh, I think that th- what they've what they have done well, and they've talked about a lot more, is they're they're going to push very hard into customizing chips or semi custom stuff. They're helping the the cloud players build their chips, right? Um, you know, I was just thinking about it. We we've talked a lot about semi custom and roll your own stuff. I mean, that's essentially what AMD did in for mm-hmm. the gaming consoles. Mm-hmm. They built custom ish gpus for microsoft and for sony and that's why they have a lock on that market i mean that's something they've yeah. done very well um i would also disagree slightly you were, you were saying before amd uh, nvidia always has better gpus than amd i would say on the retail side of things it's it's actually fairly competitive over the years right there's always every cycle that they're you know the amd will will have a part that's a little bit better in in the gaming market than nvidia it goes back and forth it's not never been clear dominance I think NVIDIA now has a, a stronger brand among consumers, but AMD is still competitive in that market. Um, where they've really struggled has been in in the data center. They don't really sell much GPU into the data center. And I, I think what's going to have to happen now is they're, they're, they've given up on training for the time being. There's still a very large inference market for AI. And I would argue that AMD actually has a shot at getting all that because especially now where everybody is so dependent on NVIDIA, prices are going up, everything's in short supply. Uh, I think that's that some of the cloud vendors are going to go with with AMD because they, they you know, they yes, AMD doesn't have CUDA, but to an Amazon or an Azure, that matters a little bit less because they have their they have the software chops to 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 bridge that gap. Right, and there's been this big debate recently. Microsoft is working on an AI accelerator. Is it AMD helping them or not? I, I don't I don't know. It doesn't look like it, but that's the there's been that rumor. I even if that one's not true, I think th- that is sort of the path towards AMD getting a share of the data center. But the the key thing there is they're a little bit vulnerable because they don't have the software. They're going to rely much more heavily on their customers for the software side of it, mm-hmm. and so. That that won't last forever, but for the I think it's a good strategy for the next few years. Yeah. So you know what I, I'd be curious to see, and I think we have some indication that you will see this perhaps from AMD, maybe not Intel, but I'll tell you what I'd like to see. I would like to see AMD and Intel create chips on other architectures than x86. 
I would like to see them diversify their architectural portfolio and go after pockets of the market because let, let's just throw this out. What if, what if there is a good slice of the data center market that should that that is poised for arm? Arm's the right part. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying what if, what what if it is? Well, then why not make arm tar- parts if you're AMD or Intel or if there's a risk five part that makes sense as an AI accelerator, why why not do it? like why are we so tied to x86 is is my is my point in a world where you and I are having this conversation that there that software ecosystem for x86 may not be the long term moat that everybody has depended on. You don't have to respond. I'm just throwing out the this is what I'd like to see. I think it would shake things up and be super interesting. Um, I mean, AMD is, you know, is, is not totally new to ARM. No. Nope. They had an ARM CPU, sort of, yep. for a while. Uh, I, I think they're open to it. I, I, think they've, I think they've actually done a fair amount of ARM work over the years. Xilinx is big ARM, does a lot of ARM yep. stuff. So I, I think it's less alien to AMD than it is to Intel. Uh, agree, agree. And Intel, and Intel, I just, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where Intel's head is on this right now. <laughs> I'm not sure that they, I, I'm not sure that they should care right now. Uh, they, they, well, they, they can't have a few care right problems. now. Yes, correct, correct. They can't care right now, right? But, but I, I was, I was a little bit disheartened when they discontinued their, their Risk Five stuff, right? Last year they made a big splash. They're going to invest a billion dollars in supporting Risk Five, largely to get Risk Five customers into their foundry, into IFS. Uh, and then in their last cost cutting, they they shut that down. And I thought that was really um, short-sighted. Yep, totally. But I, I get it. They, you know, they need they they, they have to money's money. Um, but yep. then, but then, in like almost the same breath, they said, "Oh, now we're going to support ARM." Right. And I, I don't know if if you know, I I can't tell from the outside if was that deliberately did they make a choice to say to drop Risk Five to go after ARM, or were those two different business units that didn't communicate and nobody coordinated? I wasn't trying to read that because it seemed yeah. it seemed kind of short-sighted to me i i, I mean my, my take is right they 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 if they believe that they're going to be the second source to tsmc for arm companies that's far more scale than risk five and so if you have to pick one which is going to get you more scale on your foundry assuming that they hit foundry timelines that that that's that's the ecosystem su- to support if again we're taking a a five-year view of the world versus a, a 10 to 15 view of the world. And I talked to them about this. I mean, and they they have basically, they, it's not that they're not going to make, they'll fully support RISC-V products too. There, there's a handful of RISC-V companies I know even talking to Intel. So that they can still make them, but as I'm sure you would imagine, right? It's not going to have the same scale or even at the same price per wafer as, as ARM if they can pull that off for and, and actually be a second source for ARM vendors at scale. Yeah. Uh, um, I, uh, topic for a different day. I, I, okay. I, I, I don't love that strategy. So, all right. So let's go to the last company because you're one of the few people who have this opinion on Broadcom that they are essentially going to become a software company. So how do, how do you, how do you fit? Well, I, first I assume that means that they actually buy, can buy VMware and, it, and that gets approved. But, but second, so this valuation talk of software, like how, how do you square that? Is that because that they've believed that their multiples better if they're positioned at that, or is there some other framework you have for Broadcom? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think of, I don't think Broadcom is trying to become a software company. 
or, or uh, yeah, I, I don't think they're they're a semiconductor company. I don't think they're trying to become a software company. They're a private equity fund, and so they okay. should get they should get compared to uh, you know <laughs> Apollo and KKR rather than yeah you know Oracle, Salesforce, Qualcomm. I I didn't I did not actually include them in my analysis uh, when I was looking at Nvidia as a software stock for for that reason because it, it's just such a different um, it's a very very different approach to things. Right, I I actually get a lot of questions from investors. Um, right, there's you know, there's a lot of merger arbs betting on the deal closing with VMware, and one of the concerns is some people have raised this antitrust concern. You you say VMware is a networking company is important to networking, and Broadcom has Tomahawk and has obviously an important part in networking too. Are there antitrust implications of that? Where yeah. you know VMware is going to favor Broadcom chips and I, I, yeah, I mean, ask that question, but like, I, I, I'm not sure if like the, 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 the Wi-Fi team talks to the net, to the networking team at, at Broadcom, let alone, you know, the software company on the other side of the other side of town. So they're just going to be very independent and there's not a lot of high level corporate strategy there, right? It's a portfolio company, right? Mm -hmm. So well, that's right. that's that's the that's the framework to really to really wrestle with that they're a, that they're a PE fund. I like I like that. We're now we're going to get emails from Broadcom. Thanks, Jay. And we're now they're going to be pissed at us at us both. Uh, all right. Well, we'll wrap there. Uh, good conversation um, for our listeners. We've got some 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 guests planned that I think will be exciting and interesting. Uh, first time we're having some guests, so stay tuned for that. And uh, until then, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening.